Hello and welcome to this week's Property Matters, the show that brings global industry trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host today is Carol Ta and myself, Brian Fox. Okay, thank you, Brian. And today we have a special one-hour show with Tommy Drum, Managing Director of Colin Construction. Um, Tommy, thank you so much. We're delighted to have you in um, Colin Construction is one of probably the best known contractor brands and I, I, really to prove that point when you came in to us today you brought a great book celebrating to building and civil engineering in Ireland and actually that's coming up to 210 that's it now yeah, that's up, yeah. um, so Tommy before we get into Conan Construction I'm, I'm really interested to hear how you got started in the industry so um, your own background where are you from originally? so I'm from Whitehall and uh, my father was a, an aeronautical engineer in Aer Lingus, and he's 50 years gone now this year. But uh, I remember I was with um, my careers guidance teacher, um, probably in second year, and he asked me what I was thinking of doing. I said engineering. He had a look at my exam results, and he didn't think that was a good idea. <laughs> so that was when I made up my mind I wanted to be an engineer, and I would have started college in 73 in Trinity as an engineer. So you were obviously well able for it. So, so well, what did your career guidance know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, I knew pretty quickly. Trinity is good because you don't have to decide your speciality until the fourth year. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. A lot of, a lot of us in, in Trinity were like that. So some of my pals did IT, others did mechanical, electrical. I did civil. And then I was lucky when I was in college, I got a couple of jobs, summer jobs in Dublin City Council. Uh, so I was always busy. And then I worked for the OPW when I qualified as temporary engineer and they took me on. So that was your first job out of yeah, college? that's it. Yeah. Okay, but your time was obviously not just dedicated to working in the industry. You had quite an illustrious GEA career and then into soccer? Is that is that the order it took? Yeah, I mean, I would have played um, Gaelic for my school, Aidens. I'm still on the board of management there. And the two brothers who looked after us in the 60s are still alive in their late 80s. So Brother Watcher, Brother... Uh, and they coffee. No, I mean, they're they're elderly now, but um, they still have great memories of the, the days. So we had a very successful school team. Liam Brady, soccer player, would mm-hmm. have been on our school team in Gaelic. Mm-hmm. And then I would have played soccer for Kevin's. But um, in college then, I, I focused on the soccer. And we had a great team, did very well. And then I broke into the Dublin team, under-21 team in 75. We got to the All-Ireland final, we were beaten by Kerry. That's right. They yeah. won the minor, 21 and senior that year. And that was the start of that great Kerry team. Yeah. Yes. And that haunted us for a few years, mm. but uh, thankfully at least we, we beat them a couple of times. And then I got on the senior team in 76 and played for about 10 years. And you captained? Captained in 83 and 84, yeah, which was great, real honour. Okay, and how do you keep <coughs> How do you keep that? Like, you mentioned that you're on the board at St. Aidan's, or is it, no, where St. Aidan's, yeah. Aidan's yeah. yeah. So how do, you, how do you keep involved in that now? Well, I mean, it's, it reminds me of where I grew up. Uh, I love keeping in touch with my roots. And um, I would have grown up on Collins Avenue before St. Aidan's was built and uh, DCU was built. So I was a trustee of DCU for about 10 years for that reason, just yeah. to stay connected to the community in, in Whitehall. And, and do you, in terms of staying connected, when's the last time you kicked a ball? Well, we played, the sites played the head office um, about six weeks ago. Whoa, so really? we won 4-3. <laughs> so so <laughs> this is soccer now. Sites, um, yeah, played our head office. So we do that every year. We have a cup 
and uh, I would have played for the head office against the sites and we beat them this year which is great because they hammered us last last year <laughs> oh do you know I'm, I'm really glad you said that they hammered you last year because otherwise I'd be thinking are you, are you afraid to tackle the boss are you afraid to take on the boss <laughs> they're not a bit afraid to tackle me I can assure you so that's Karen. an annual event yeah alright yeah. so it's not long at all you're, so you're still playing I still play a little bit yeah excellent and okay this year this year you were a winner but on previous years how gracious are you is that competitive streak still there ah well I mean it's hard to keep up with these young lads but I think they beat us 8-1 uh, a couple of years okay. ago right so um, but this year was great I mean it's uh, getting people together most people when, when you're involved in construction you're very confined almost to your project Yeah. so it's a great opportunity to get people across different projects together and yeah. uh, so we did the same in Sweden we have a soccer man annual soccer match in Sweden as well for our projects and uh, head office team there so, uh, so sports great that way, isn't it? Mm. You know, look, it, it's great from a connection point of view, but even um, in terms of health and safety and a, a huge focus towards improving mental health um, or acknowledging um, mental health, the importance of positive mental health across the construction industry, it's something that's really come to the fore in the last number of years. So I assume that's something that... that plays a part in this. Yeah, well, they say in construction, um, CIOB did a, a global study and John Sweeney, who's a senior contracts manager with us for over 30 years, he's, he's chairman of the Dublin branch. He went to Edinburgh about six, six months ago for a global review and they reckon if you're working in construction, your chances are eight times higher of suicide, right? oh, particularly in really? the wet trades. Yeah, so it's yeah, a bit staggering. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, just, I'm just interested because yeah. um, I vaguely remember, I'm not saying that... Uh, the seventies. I mean, in terms of of career, um, what was the construction industry like in those days? Or did you have any inclination of getting into the construction before you went like into, into Trinity? No, I didn't actually, Brian. In fairness. Um, yeah, because I think at, t- at that time it was a bit. It's, it's very patchy. cyclical. It's yeah, very, yeah, like every yeah. T- I've seen a downturn nearly every ten years, and I've, I've worked abroad as a result nearly every ten years. Really? Yeah, yeah. I went to the Middle East for seven years. Yeah. And then I gave up the football in '84 to buy yeah. a house, saved to buy a house, and then I went to Spain for two years. Uh, went to um, Australia for four years in 2009 and then London for two years and back home. So it's a very cyclical industry. So to, to bring you to the point that Carol was making there, are many that are working in the construction industry uh, adjust to it? Can they adapt that sort of cyclical uh, cycle uh, in terms of, of, you know, financially and, and emotionally and psycholo- psychologically as well? well? Well, it's difficult, Brian, right? Yeah. I mean, um, the number of Irish people, and there's 100,000 have left the industry. Uh, over the recession and you know while we've got I think another 60,000 back in the industry over the last five years we're nowhere near where we were before so there's a huge dearth of talent that are probably in Australia probably the Middle East um, Canada and uh, they're slow to come home because they're they're very developed countries well not in that but even when they do come home you know um, one of the things we were discussing is you know housing the way it is at the moment that obviously it's such an impediment for people coming back but even if people who left in order to secure employment for themselves when they return to Ireland they're not even getting the benefit of any incentives to buy like help to buy they're actually being penalised for not having been earning in the country which seems incredibly unfair so I think that we haven't I don't think we've responded well at a policy level to people who had to seek work outside of Ireland and who might wish to come back to Ireland now. I think it's something we've done really poorly. You know, no lessons seem to have been learned. But um, you're absolutely right in what you say about the cyclical nature of this industry. But one thing that is changing is that, you know, maybe, and, and I'd love to hear your take on this, you know, even up to a decade ago, um, during a downturn, our best hope with this industry was emigration. Um, 
to some extent where it's now the skill set that's being built up while we have a skills shortage in terms of labor there's um emerging technologies there's new skill sets being created all the time and that kind of talent can be exported so next time around the next cycle you know whether we're looking whether we're looking into it right now which certainly appears to be the case but over the next decade has the situation changed that we're less likely to see immigration and we're more likely to see an export of skills that maybe could allow people to to stay in Ireland or an export services abroad so a couple of things one thing I'd say before I comment and I would say that before the recession, I think it was about 28-29% of people working in the industry were graduates. Now it's about 48%. So that's a massive mm. improvement. Mm-hmm. And uh, But uh, I was president of the Master Builders and Contracts Association uh, this year. And we went in to make a presentation to the Minister of Finance in preparation for his budget. And he started off the discussion by saying, we're, we're determined to get away from the cyclical nature of the industry by putting in place multi-annual budgets. So that was a really positive message to hear from the Minister of Finance. And he, he seems to be, and the government seem to be serious about it. I mean, they, they see it, right? And I would say that if you look across the country, there just isn't any investment of any level taking place on infrastructure. And there's a, there's a massive disconnect between Dublin and the rest of the country. Massive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're lucky in the MBCA and CIF for a national, like a 26-county organisation. So we really hear from the rest of the country what the challenges are. Remember when they brought in the SEO, you know, the Sexual mm-hmm. Employment Order, which was different from the REA pre-recession, mm-hmm. which was deemed to be unconstitutional. It took us two years, two and a half years, to try and get alignment within the organisation between Dublin and outside just to agree to those rights and go to the Labour Court. So it was a massive, massive challenge. And even now, you know, it's unsustainable that some of the rates that have been paid by the smaller companies in, in Limerick and Kerry and where there isn't really any great level of activity. But I'd hope if the government are serious about their investment programmes at $118 billion, they're saying they're going to invest. In terms of infrastructure and the, and the project for 2040, etc. But the, the one thing they have said they will do, which we haven't seen yet, which is disappointing, they said they'll put in a tracker, a project tracker, uh, so that we can see the projects coming down the tracks, literally. Oh, right. And that's not there now. So it's very difficult to comment on that. Yeah. There's is, no evidence. But. Is part of the problem here the fact that... Um, <clears throat> Despite the fact that Rebuilding Ireland was a multi-party, it was a cross-party initiative, it really is very dependent on the politics of the day and housing in general is subject to the politics of the day. Unlike maybe other industries like tourism or our food industry through board, um, on board BIA or something. So, you know, is it a case that maybe there's an over... Um, it's overly politicised... Probably. I mean, I'm, I can remember clearly, right, when the government in, introduced Part 5, I would have been on the IHPA at that time, the Irish House Builders Association, and I wouldn't have agreed with it, right? And, and so I'm consistent in saying that it basically dismantled the ability of local authorities around Ireland to, to deliver social and affordable housing. That's what they did. They did it so very successfully. I would know, because in McInerney's we were delivering 2,000 houses at peak around the country, nearly in every village in Ireland. 2,000 houses? In Ireland per year. Per, per year. year? Probably at peak, maybe so. more. In my time, we, were, we peaked at 1,100 in Ireland, right? But but my point is that the government made a decision, a political decision, mm. to, if you like, to put the burden of the uh, provision of social and foreign housing on developers, right? right? And in some ways, it makes no sense. And now the local authorities have lost all their skills and they're trying to catch up. 
and it's very difficult to get the volume of housing up. It's taken us, as you can see, a long time. The supply and demand piece is part of it, just the ability to push through the houses and get them finished. Infrastructure has got to be put in place, water supplies. Do you empathise with, with what's happening at the moment, do you think, in government circles at the moment? or? How would you, you feel that? You know, I, I think there's a huge amount of frustration out there, right? I mean, you, you can see with um, younger people now uh, how frustrated they are and they can't get their hands on the money to the buy a house. The, the cost oh. and the quality of housing is increasing rapidly because, why? Because you're trying to make the finished product much better than mm -hmm. it ever was. But that's got a massive cost associated with it. I think it was Mitchell McDermott did a study 18 months ago and they looked at what it would cost to provide a typical apartment in Dublin. You can't do it, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you look at the guidelines in terms of borrowings and you look at the actual cost of delivering a residential apartment. And there's a massive tension around that, Carol, right? So Yeah, but uh, and that's feeding into the growth of the PRS sector yes. that we're seeing at the moment that's been heavily criticised because it, it is at odds with um, those seeking home ownership. You know, and, and our rate of rents in Ireland but also at, or sorry in Dublin but also outside of Dublin that's that's massively prohibitive at the moment yeah I mean my, my view would be a little bit different I would see it as a really positive thing mm -hmm. if you have uh, good quality um, pro uh, properties available for renting that's a good thing we've never had that mm -hmm. really on the scale that it's there at the moment you know the Kennedy's Kennedy Wilson's have come in and they've developed really really high quality housing because that's their model but when you're talking about over five thousand, or oh, sorry, over three thousand euros per month for a two bed down in the Docklands, that's totally unsustainable, as yeah. you well know, right? But yeah. um, the point is, something's got to change. It is a supply and demand equation yeah. at the end of the day. So you know, it, it I don't feeds, know what's going to yeah, sort that problem. It it certainly feels like we need to get even more sophisticated than just talking about supply and demand in terms of numbers. Like we've just, we've worked on the numbers and gotten it wrong in terms of type and where the types of homes are being delivered. So we seem to be, you know, sometimes addressing the right problem with, you know, but in the wrong place. And that seems to be the level of mismatch that's there. And we still, our government still hasn't taken an empirical approach to urban planning and yeah. that so that that's still a problem despite the fact that the data exists now that we just never had before so we can argue over which data we use but the reality is we have an awful lot more than we did if we were say two decades ago yeah um and it's not being used but you know we, we might just we might just step back a little bit because i want to bring this back really to the work that you're doing right now so with column construction um i know that the the projects you're involved in at the moment. Actually, tell us a little bit about the key projects for 2019. So, I mean, in the last, I suppose, five years, we would have built and refurbished about 1.25 million square foot of offices, right? So it's been a, a very, very busy sector, as you probably were. And uh, one of the things that transformed our business in 2010, we, we built our first data centre. And we grew counter-cyclically right through the recession. So we lost none of our talent. We've kept the team together. And we won our first project in Germany in 2014. So at the moment, between what we built and what we have currently underway, under construction, we've got 414 megawatts of buildings and data centres, which is about 3.25 million square feet. region-wise, where are those? Because we know that the, the Greater Dublin area... Yeah. Um, 
uh, we actually had the host in Ireland team in for a data centre special here a few months ago and I was really surprised just to learn some of the figures and some of the scale at which this is building uh, and uh, to know that, that the Greater Dublin area is the the biggest data cluster in Europe That's it. blew my mind. Yeah. I would have assumed that across Europe we would have had stronger areas and it's funny, you know, um, I I I know um, other engineering firms uh, or other engineering firms, uh, particularly Winthorpe, uh, you know, would have been interviewed publicly and said that actually the data centre sector focusing on that um, around again 2010 was the lifeblood of their business and the skills, I suppose, latching on to this sector when it was maybe unclear what the future of that sector was going to be. I wouldn't call it a gamble, but it was certainly um, it was certainly forecasting that that was very accurate. No, it's quite remarkable what I suppose the data centre sector in Ireland has achieved in a relatively short space of time. And now we're exporting it. Like uh, we went to Germany, Sweden, and we're building, say, four or five, five projects at the moment between Sweden and Germany. And the great thing about Irish um, business abroad, we have an amazing understanding of what it takes to get something built and uh, Irish people and uh, generally our supply chain will follow us to Sweden and Germany. Uh, it's been very effective for our clients to be able to, not just us, any of the companies from Ireland that are uh, very active in this se sector and have been, uh, I think there's great recognition by our, our clients, the American clients mainly, and some Chinese clients as well. For excellence in this for sector. Excellence, yeah. So you must have a very good overview um, having run similar projects in Ireland and in other jurisdictions. Where does Ireland stack up in terms of regulatory framework and the processes, uh, as you mentioned there, the ability to get things built? I think one of the things I separate Ireland around is safety. You know, we're, we we kind of made uh, obligations and accountabilities and safety about 20 years ago. We made The government made that decision and it basically transformed people's approach to safety. So I'd, I've worked in many countries around the world and I would safely say in Ireland we're really good at safety because you go to other jurisdictions and sometimes they just don't have the same mass around safety so you have to take your culture there and insist that you operate the projects to your standards and uh, we've done that very effectively I wouldn't name the countries I would just mm -hmm. say that yeah. maybe we're not in a bad place when it comes to um, safety performance Well that's a really positive thing to hear and in fact that leads us nicely into the team and we're going to take a quick break but after the break we'll come in and, and just take a look at what's happening across the team there so we're here in studio with Tommy Drum, Managing Director of Colin Construction, who will be staying with us to talk to us more after the break about some of the projects that Colin Construction have been involved in and also why STEM is important. So stay tuned. Everything's fine on 93.9. Dublin South FM. Oh, will you look at them go? I wish I had their energy. Ah, they're good for the soul though, aren't they? I can't imagine life without Lucky. <laughs> but he might outlive me yet. Oh, well, take my advice and sign up for a Dog's Trust Canine Care card. It's completely free and it's given me such peace of mind since I did. What's that? Well, it's simple, really. It means if you pass away before Lucky, Dog's Trust will take him in and give him the care and love he needs until they match him with the perfect forever home. That sounds terrific. How much did you say it costs? It doesn't cost a cent. Great. How do I sign up? Just text CARE to 50100 and they'll call you with more information. Or you can go to dogstrust.ie. 
Well, that's wonderful advice. I'll do that right away. Here, Lucky. Good boy. Whatever loan you're looking for, wedding loans, holiday loans, car or home improvement loans, make sure you talk to your local Capital Credit Union, where there are no hidden charges or early repayment penalties on your loan. Loans subject to approval, terms and conditions apply. Capital Credit Union Limited, regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Senior Line is a confidential telephone service for older people. Free phone 1800 80 45 91. We're open every day of the year from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., including Christmas Day and New Year. So it's free phone 1800 80 45 91. We're there if you need someone to talk to and need someone to listen. We're older people too, so we will understand, and we're very good at listening. Did you get the senior line number? It's free phone 1800 80 45 91. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Carl Thomas at Brian Fox. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Tommy Drum, Managing Director of Colin Construction, is still with us for this special show. And now we want to talk about a team, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we touched on health and safety and obviously the the importance of that and earlier you know we made reference to the fact that um positive mental health has started to play a huge part in that in fact for uh this, for the construction industry federation safety week um this week we or this year we actually had um Dermot Carey in from the CIF and we also had a clinical hypnotherapist coming in to talk to us about issues but in fact one of the sites that we talked about was yours because you had run some interesting discussions. In fact, I think your site, one of your sites was the only one to close down for two hours on the first day of Safety Week to, to address some of these issues and to start a conversation about positive mental health well in the industry. Annette Tierney actually was the lady who, she's, what she's been doing is quite interesting. She basically will get a number of people in a room and she'll reenact a real-life situation in your presence. Mm. It's a very unnerving thing to be part of, right? The first time we did it was about two and a half years ago where we reenacted uh, with about 40 of our team a situation that occurred in Heathrow where a beam fell from high level in a, in a live area. How do you reenact something like that? Well, you basically have actors who go back maybe three days beforehand and they work their way through the events that took place over the previous day previous days and they ask you to get involved if you see something that you didn't think should have taken place you speak up and it's quite powerful and uh, the first time you do it that's yeah. that's all oh they relate what happened exactly yeah. okay and yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah. what and we did on that morning that you're talking about and um, and i'll tell you what, what one of the outcomes of it was is that annette had two actors in a room who talked about you know mental health and uh, you know how what are the signs and what do you do and we discovered that you have to be very upfront you have to say to people you know have you ever thought of suicide yeah i'm amazed by that now we've only discovered that through pieta houses mm. advice and some of the alan has done some of the toolbox talks over the last six months so our own team when they come out of that event they were shaken 
right? And they were really, really impressed that something as dynamic as that could have such a big impact on them. Because you're in a live environment. The actor is, is eyeballing you. He's talking to you. You can talk to him or her and have the conversation. And in a lot of cases with men, maybe that's the problem. There's yeah, no conversation. We talk about the football that, forever. Yeah, yeah. Is it going to be a real conversation? Mm. Probably not. Mm. Uh, you know, my, my own mother suffered from depression. Now she's 36 years gone this year, but she suffered from depression most of her married life, right? So I'm kind of used to it. And... I'm happy talking about it with people. But uh, the day after that event, one of our employees wrote to me. He actually wrote to me and he said, I've tried to write this email so many, many times and I've just stopped and I've never sent it because I felt that if I did put my hand up, that I would suffer as a result, that people would look down on me or they would see it as a weakness on my part. But he said, I was so impacted by what Annette and her team did yesterday. I'm actually writing the email. I've sent it to you. Sent it to me, copied my construction director. So I was address. I did the national address for the MBCA there about three weeks ago. Most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done in my life. And I would have talked about that and read out some of the things that uh, was said. And I rang him before and said, "Are you comfortable if I do this?" And he said, "Yes." And because uh, it suppose it demonstrated to him that if you speak up, you can actually make a difference. And people who are in the space he was in, who do nothing and say nothing, and they hear that. You saw the young girl who was in the, la- the toy show. I mean, oh my God. You heard her speaking up about bullying. So all the other children who heard her speak must feel, oh my God, this is effective. And the thing about mental health is that it does affect an awful lot of people, so many people. In, in our lives, and some of which we know about. And the construction industry is disproportionately yeah. affected. Yeah. Well, it's hard working on sites in the middle of winter, you know, in the dark mornings, the dark evenings. and. Uh, but men have a, have a particular problem too, don't they? I mean, let's, think, be honest, yeah, let's be frank you're about right, it. Brian. You know? They're getting better, I think. And there's a, there's a payments issue as well. You know, it's a stressful business to be self-employed in as well. But, but I think it's a good lead-in, say, to diversity, right? I think, mm. you know, the thing I've seen in teams, if you've got diverse teams, it's a different dynamic. It's a different conversation. There's more interaction. And, you know, unfortunately, in construction, 1% of people working on projects are women. 1%. Yeah. 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 In the industry, it's gone from 8% to 7%. Mm -hmm. So I I just checked our numbers. We're 18% right at the moment. Now, are these uh, people involved in projects? Uh, Yes. Or is that just across the... Across the departments and across the business. Okay. But even even in those situations, I think they're they're inclined to go to cliques as well. And one clique won't talk to another clique, won't talk to another clique, you know. So you have that problem there as well. And one clique... Sees that, please. Yeah, but no, beyond the what I'd be more concerned about is that you know where that we're seeing an increase in women across very uh, predetermined roles, whether it's you know accounting or HR or communications. Well, even on sites, I was one of the things that helps a little, but it doesn't help enough. And I know there have been so many initiatives, but you know. I, I mean, let's let's talk in very real terms. You know, for the last number of years, there's been a building equality push. Um, and I know most recently the CIF are asking companies to to sign up to a charter Correct. Uh, for yep. building, uh, sorry, for equality and diversity. But I just want to relay a very real conversation I had with one of our construct or one of our const- uh, contractor clients. And, you know, we had a conversation and said, look, you know, your website's very male dominated. And they said, we don't have any women working across our projects. And and I said, look, why, you know, and, and we spoke about confirmation bias and how people like people who are like us. And 
but when we broke it down, you know, I was trying to see, you know, is there a way maybe that there's an element of bias in the CV application process or something? And it turns out that this contractor firm had only, over the course of a decade, received possibly two CVs from from women applicants. So I was coming in as an outsider almost criticising the fact, you know, the, their application process. So, you look, maybe we need to go a step further and and say, OK, maybe is there something in your job spec? Is there something in your in your culture that's discouraging women? But this is the reality. Now, they're based outside of Dublin. They're a rural, they're a rural um, yep. contractor. But two applications from women in 10 years for, for, for site or for project roles. So so we, we would have debated this for the last five years in the CIA, Construction Industry Federation, the MBCA. So we have concluded, right, we've gone externally to 10AO and taken their advice and done some market research. So we have a programme now where we're writing out to member companies to ask them to sign up for a careers development mm-hmm. programme for three to five years. It only costs 100 euros per company per month. Mm-hmm. It's very little. And uh, so what that will do is that we've got to get out into the primary schools in the first instance now. And we've got to appeal to the, the boys and girls who are, their minds are completely open, right? And we've got to convince them. We've got to convince their parents. We've got to convince careers guidance students, uh, teachers, that our industry is actually a really, really rewarding industry to work in. And the plethora of different jobs and roles that are available. There's probably about 15 or 20 roles available to men and women. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I wouldn't accept that uh, you know that that women is not uh, that women can't do a job. I think the thing I've discovered, Sonia Lennon launched a very important event last week, which I went to. Mm-hmm. It was opened by the Taoiseach. And that what I caught my imagination is that they were highlighted the top five things that a woman wants to see in a job. Right? You know, it's the flexibility, and it's you know close to 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 living close to the job, mm-hmm. and you know that thing and family supports, and we're not good at that, right? As a as a country, and we're, if you go to if you go to Sweden, we're at the, they're at the other end of the scale, and we're seeing that now because we're working in Sweden, mm-hmm. and they're way ahead, I would say, of the rest of Europe. So I think we've we've a huge amount to do, but we've accepted now. We got to go to schools, and Ronan Howe from our organisation would have gone into Holt National School. And he's, you know, the STEAM, mm-hmm. you know, science and technology, wow. engineering, arts and maths. And he is blown away, and I've been blown away, going into those classrooms, and the quality of questioning you get oh, from children yeah. is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. But we're capturing their imagination as well. We're solving problems. We're talking to them about how do you get from, you know, uh, an apple to a, a bottle of cider or whatever. And they love that. You know, I, I would never have thought that capturing the imaginations of children would be difficult because... Construction is a, construction and engineering. These are fascinating areas, um, particularly for children. They grow up learning how to create and do and and make. So I would actually say maybe principal challenges are um, career guidance teachers who don't understand the changing roles of construction. They don't understand the changing roles that emerging technologies have brought. But you know, is there some parental? Um, uh, some parental pushback or resistance here as well. You know, particularly maybe from people who've been in the industry, the traditional industry, and they found it tough, they found it hard, uh, and they want something different for the yeah. next generation. Do they do they accept that actually the industry is changing? So the hard slog that it was 20 years ago, it's going to be a different kind of difficult going forward. Yeah, yeah so there's the opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. So if we can, uh, construction hasn't changed dramatically in a hundred years, right? But now we're at the beginning of the shift where if you take Lang O'Rourke, I would have worked in London with yeah. Lang O'Rourke for a couple of years, and Ray O'Rourke will not accept that you can't do it safer, higher quality, but you can pre-assemble every element off-site or 70%. And um, so, you know, you can pre-assemble large elements of projects now in a factory environment. Yeah. It's a much better working environment. You go to Australia. Of course it is. Much more women working in that sort of situation. And modular construction is something that we've explored um Actually, we probably we probably um, cover modular construction maybe once a month on the show here because it's it's something that we see as such a growth area. But actually, this morning I was at a an industry event, um, where the panel actually it was the first time I'd been at an event where the panel were very negative about modular buildings um, and a modular construction and the potential for offsite that you know maybe feeling that the scale. For the scale wasn't there in Ireland to really leverage and and to feel the benefit um, uh, or the advantages that should come with it. But also what was really interesting actually on this panel is that I realised there's still some very old school thinking about modular because one person actually referred to the fact that uh, they were built in uh, rectangular boxes and that's just so far removed from the reality of the modular homes and and the modules that are being developed today. Um, And in fact... In the same way, we had the conversation about timber frame homes and block built homes, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Internally and externally, you shouldn't be able to tell the form of construction. You're right. And um, but I suppose I can only speak from my own experience. So in, in when I went to Australia, you know, I would have manufactured, say, accommodation for 4000 people in Thailand, shipped it to Fremantle and up to Barrow Island for the Chevron's LNG Gorgon plant project. So I've done it. And uh, the highest land speed in the world is 429 kilometres per hour on Barrow Island. So we had to design, manufacture and build these units, which were cyclone proof. So you could, if, if you have the nous, if you have the determination, you can do most things. I think Ireland is struggling with the modular housing solution, but there are companies investing in it now, mm-hmm. and you're going to see a shift. Uh, why do you think that is? I think it's, people are slow to change, right? The timber-framed housing uh, made a massive shift here over, say, my experience coming up to, say, from about 95 to 2008, 2009, and most housing was timber-framed, maybe 6% of the housing. So you just have to prove to people that it can be done, and uh, um, so I think, if, from my experience again on the modularisation, we we built and designed and built two large data centres, Carl in um, Grange Castle. We we built fifty six modules in Donegal. We had to yeah. close the motorway to take them down, but it was sixty thousand man hours. But they were all manufactured in Ireland. All manufactured in Donegal by E and I, in a factory, and we brought them into the project. And we we were able to get ahead with building the project and get the envelope waterproof. So that was fine, but we brought these finished products and just slid them in. Mm. We did the same. We've just taken our first skid from Estonia to Sweden today, and it's much safer. You can do a lot of pre-commissioning in a really, really clean and uh, well-organized environment. Much, much safer. So that's really interesting because you know, again, this would be this would be something that you know we hear proponents for of modular build tell us, and then there's there seems to be a quite a big disconnect between those who are embracing all methods of modern construction and those who aren't. So it's really interesting to hear what what level of the or what percentage would you know of your output over the last year has been modular? 
Yeah, I, or give, do you know for your pipeline for 2020? I would say it's a relatively small right element of buildings, but we've done it now and our okay. clients love it, right? And because it helps give them safer outcome, higher quality and uh, in a faster time frame. So I think you're going to see more and more. Of it. Can I ask about cost? Because that seems to be such a big issue. Um, you know, initially there was modular building was being being sold on the basis of um, financial savings and that really didn't transpire and that that kind of that slowed the momentum whereas actually if you look at the savings in terms of certainty of program certainty of build um less delays on site safer all of the other benefits you know is there an overall saving there or what has your experience been so, so i'll give you a simple example right now it's, i haven't built housing since um McInerney's in 2009 but at that time a traditional house you'd build it in 16 weeks a timber frame house you'd build it in 12 weeks so that's four weeks quicker Mm-hmm. So that's saving in prelims, the actual cost of running a project. But it'll cost you 4000 more per house. So you'd have to balance one against the other. Okay. Now, there are companies that do modular housing now. So they're bringing the full house maybe in two or three pieces and assembling it. So you have all the, fu- the jointing and all to do. That you can probably build in six weeks. So again, there's very, very tangible benefits to get the house finished quicker. Mm-hmm. And we, that's fine. But it's still it's hazard that we still prefer our bricks and mortar type of house. Then. Brian, you know, you're right. That's that's going to take a generation to change, mm-hmm. right? But it worked for timber frame housing. And it's actually a warmer house if you have a timber framed house. You know, and now you have airtight houses. And people just take time. The, the good about, thing about this industry, we changed the regulations quite quite a lot in the last 10 years. You know, we're good at reacting and making change, making change for the better. The B car is a good example. Yeah. You know, that traceability bit and uh, you know, we have to sign off everything now. There's no way something's going to slip through because you'd be sent to prison mm-hmm. if you don't do it properly. And that scares a lot of people who have to sign off. So there's a huge amount of rigour around quality of construction now. Mm-hmm. And it, look, are we talking about that enough? Because you might have seen... <laughs> no, no I, I think that's a really important one because actually, you know, uh, I, I think the reputation of buildings took a hit you know, over the past decade and a half. And I think it's really important that we talk about quality. And when we had a change in building regulations to um, to allow for smaller units and to take away a dual aspect, there was a criticism that th- this was a lessening of the quality. But that's not true at all. It was a changing of the design spec, but yes, there was no, no lessening of quality. And I think that's something that really got missed in the national debate. So I think it's actually really important that we talk about the quality of build that's being delivered in Ireland. And did you happen to catch the RTE show about quarries last week? You I know, didn't, it's it, Carol, no. you know it it was something that that sent yeah. us. It was something that sent us backwards in terms of traceability of our raw materials. Um, but look, we we might get into that on another day. But while we have you with us, Tommy, I know there's certainly more topics that we want to cover, including um, Colin's extension into Europe. So we're going to take a short break now, but stay tuned and we'll just be discussing more with Tommy Drum from Colin Construction after the break. Broadcasting from the Dum Drum Town Centre, this is Dublin South FM. Join myself, Carol Tallon and Brian Fox on Property Matters every Tuesday, 6 to 7 p.m. on Dublin South FM 93.9 as we take on the big property stories of the week affecting Dublin. 
Hello, it's Joe Dalton here from Breakthrough Brands. Please tune in to my show every Tuesday at 2pm where I get to interview business leaders and authors and mentors from all over the globe. That's Breakthrough Brands, 2pm on Dublin South FM. Hello, Martha Lynham here. Why not tune into Memory Lane, a programme for our senior citizens every Tuesday at four? Or listen back on the podcast section of the Dublin South FM website. We'll be taking a nostalgic trip down Memory Lane with a mix of history, trivia, some golden oldie music and a little bit of banter. That's Memory Lane, Tuesdays at four on Dublin South FM. Greetings, 60s fans. It's Jim and Isabel here. Do you remember Opal Fruits, the Rainbow Cafe, or the Poolsman? Did you listen to the latest pop record on Radio Caroline or Radio Luxembourg? Well, whether the answer is yes or no, Echoes of the Jukebox puts you right at the heart of the sights and the sounds of the 60s. Armed with a stack of singles, we invite you to join us on Echoes of the Jukebox right here on Dublin South FM, Wednesdays 2 to 3. The Wurlitzer's humming. We'll see you there, gang. Dublin South FM Welcome back here to Property Matters in Dublin South FM with Carl Tallon and myself, Brian Fox. So we still have in the studio uh, Tommy Drum. Tommy is uh, Managing Director of Construction. So Tommy, just to continue on the conversation, um, we were, we haven't talked to you about your Sandyford and Blackrock projects yet. Can you tell us more about those? Well, I I suppose Blackrock is interesting. I cycled by it every Sunday morning with my mates. Uh, I've been cycling for 16 years now. And they quiz me as I cycle by. Uh, we have three projects in Blackrock. We've been there for about three years. And uh, we basically doubled the size of the Frascati Shopping Centre while oh. it remained live. Which is looking amazing. It's a, I think it's a massive improvement. Yeah. And um, so we've never lost a day's trading. So that's really so important well yeah. in mm-hmm. that time. And Stephen Clark is our contracts manager. And across the other side of the road, there was quite a dated building that mm. um, we demolished. And we've replaced with an amazing new office building. I don't know whether you've seen it yeah. um, as you drive out of town. And the company who did the cladding is actually a gig. This is Black Rock, Oscar. sorry, Tommy. That's in Black Rock. Yeah. And we're upgrading what is a, probably a really dated uh, retail centre behind uh, as you drive out of town on the left-hand side. So that's going through a massive transformation at the moment. So we have three projects within maybe 200 metres of each other and through a very busy thoroughfare and now our client wants to stick 45 apartments on top of the shopping centre so we've agreed terms with them and we're hoping to be starting soon on building 45 apartments on top of Frescati shopping centre so that's nice you know the mix of residential and retail and that's an interesting one because this is quite a new concept in Ireland although it's well established across the UK and in lots of other countries Um, but it's going to require a bit of a culture shift for Ireland yeah, it's probably early stages and one as high profile as that uh, will have a big impact, I'm sure. Um, but it does seem to make a lot of sense. Of course yeah. it does. And why didn't they include the apartments in the original plans? Well, I suppose it took them time to get the planning. You know, you have to work your way yeah. through the local yeah. authority yeah. and yeah. convince them that what you're doing is right. And uh, it took, did take them a long time to get the planning permission. But it's showing a lot of confidence in the economy then, isn't it? Ah, yeah, definitely. And, um, or in the, the future as well. Like we've had to leave tower crane in place uh, people don't notice it because we've kind of finished it reasonably tidily inside in the shopping centre but um, no, so I think Blackrock is a really interesting place and it's, it, we're going to be busy there for, please go for the next couple of years and Sandyford 
we've finished four projects in Sandyford in the, in the recent past. We've done it's hard to keep up with Sandyford, isn't it? <laughs> with the, with the amount of projects. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. fabulous, actually. I think Sandyford is one of the most underrated business areas. Like, our, our offices are based in City West, but uh, Sandyford was definitely high on the running when we were considering locations. Yeah, yeah. you've got the Lewis... Yeah. which cuts right through the heart of it and, and uh, so it's been a really good location and, and as far as I can see there's a lot more offices that are going to be developed in Sandyford mm-hmm. you know we're looking to bid for more work now in Sandyford over the next while but there's be, there's a really successful mix of residential yep. and office there and you just don't see that in other places no. um, I think that's probably the exemplar in terms of mixing that whereas I remember 10 years ago going out and looking at apartments yep. and quite frankly you just you wouldn't get a first time buyer to buy an apartment out there um, at that time, the Lewis, I don't think, was even running at that point. But the empty blocks were all there and yes. the, the the shells were all there. Um, but the apartments kitted out beautifully and still couldn't attract buyers. And even landlords weren't so interested because even the tenants didn't want to come out at that point. So the transformation over the last decade or decade and a half of, of Sandyford has been utterly amazing yeah and you're so close to the motorway mm-hmm. yeah you know you have accessibility mm-hmm. well there are a lot of projects in this area anyway going up at the moment yeah and it seems to be a lot of confidence in the area as well yeah, yeah. i mean we, we see a lot of very very large residential schemes coming to bid now i think yeah. what happened when the regulations relaxed the heights so many developers clients decided they'd stand back to try and get increased densities and heights on their projects. Mm-hmm. And now, as far as I can see, there's a They're massive flood. amount of work coming forward and large projects, very large projects. Yeah, well, I just, I saw the stats there uh, two weeks ago. Uh, is it 28,000 commencement notices? That's it. Um, have issued and that's the highest, uh, that's the highest we've had since the crash. So I don't know, will they, you one would assume they will translate. Oh, I think they will. I'm seeing them now. We're, we're tendering for very like 450 apartments, 500 apartments, 600 apartments. These are large schemes. Are all of these PRS? No, not all of them. I think it's a good mix from the ones we're we're pricing. We've got a mix of both. Okay, so I think that's good. Yeah. I think, you go back to your earlier comments, Carolyn. I think that's better yeah. for the for the market, for yeah. the buyer, for the renter, whoever. They they've got a choice. Well, let's break down. Uh, like, are you able to discuss your pipeline for 2020 of what you know so far? Do you know what's going to be keeping you busy on site? Yeah, we, we in Sandyford, we, we finished a beautiful building um, for Cyril Maguire just as you drive into Sandyford at the Lewis line there. That's one South County. Oh, yes. And, uh, so we're doing a second building for mm-hmm. Cyril, right? We hope to start in January. So that's a really, really nice job. And um, we're starting a project for the Linders in Haymarket, an office building. Um, and we've secured a, a project yesterday in Wushi, a pharmaceutical plant up in Dundalk. Okay. A huge investment by a Chinese pharmaceutical company. And you probably saw in the media last week, mm-hmm. they've announced the second phase. Um, and we've, we're bidding for value retail at the moment. We did the second phase of value retail down in Kildare. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're out to bid for the third at the moment. So we're in competition to try and secure that. That's another area that's entirely transformed over the past, actually much shorter over the last four or five years. Yeah, fascinated by retail. Like retail is changing now. You know, mm-hmm. so many people are buying online, but yet you're still seeing a significant level of investment. If you look at Henderson buying um, green. from Green, mm. and you look at um, was it Blackstone bought from here where we are mm. here, so massive investment in retail. So. That's encouraging. But then if we look towards Kildare, what we're seeing is this experiential thing. And, and that's maybe where retail needs to go. Yeah. And I think uh, Kildare, um, particularly Kildare Village, might have been a little bit ahead of the curve on that. Um, 
And I see that there's talk for uh, a similar centre down in Cork, on the escorts of Cork. Okay, yeah, we're not active in Cork, but um, uh, mm. I can't see why that won't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the data centre front, you know, we're incredibly busy. We have a very large project at just the junction between the M1 and, and the M50. We've been there for a number of years, and uh, I only see that sector becoming busier from what yeah. we've been told mm-hmm. uh, by our clients. That uh, Is that sector moving out of the Greater Dublin area at all? I don't believe so. The, I think the triangulation of their hubs is very, very important and the speed of transfer of information between their three, a lot of them would have three different hubs mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, very close to one another. So I know Athen Rye was a disaster, right, in, in mm-hmm. the sense that uh, all those jobs and that investment, the west of Ireland, mm-hmm. which is desperate for investment with the new motorway just constructed, I can't believe that that slipped through yeah. and uh, I don't know whether that will ever happen. But uh, I would say around the greater Dublin area now, that couldn't be maybe 50 kilometres outside of the M50. That's still happening, as far as I can see. And that's a good thing. Industrial is an in- interesting sector in the sense it takes a lot to for an industrial investment to work. It's very sensitive, and uh, we tend to watch that very closely. But the industrial sector is, is doing very, very well at the moment. We're, we're building for Green Out and Horizon. We've done about eight buildings up there for them. Okay. So and that's going well. You know, industrial is something we've rarely talked about on the show over the last year and in fact most recently we talked about the rezoning of older industrial sites all around uh, within the M50 environs and that doesn't sound like a positive thing for industrial or is it a case that these spots are becoming too prime as the city grows and they're needed for residential over the next two decades and is that pushing is that pushing industrial outside of the M50? I would say you're right. And, uh, you know, just take Horizon, right? That's at the airport. Mm-hmm. It's on the motorway. And I think there's th- 250 acres there owned by Green now for development or Henderson. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you take the old Nace Road where there was a huge amount of industrial, yeah. you've got the Lewis. Yeah. So why would you have the industrial? Okay, it's good for jobs, but it's also good for living. So maybe yeah. that mix you talked about earlier on, you just got to be thinking outside the box a little bit more. But that's a very design. unusual. That's a very unusual um, neighbourhood where you have small houses with industrial behind it. You know, it, it's a, it doesn't seem sustainable. But then, I mean, we we saw that in Walkinstown as well to a certain extent. So yeah. it's difficult to see. But it's interesting actually. We haven't really had a conversation about industrial property in Ireland um, so it's interesting to hear you you speaking positively about it because there's been yep. such a, a shift in terms of office and data centres and warehousing that it's it's difficult to see mm. But I'd imagine it's slower though than, it is. than, mm. than, than retail It's a great indicator though of new business and uh, job creation uh, And basically and you're talking about foreign direct aren't you? Yeah. Really? Mm. A lot of the time, yes Which would be enticed by various cuts and tax and so forth. Another, another sector actually is the primary care sector. Which primary, probably, yeah. Yeah, so we're just finishing primary care centre in Brain now probably around January time. Um, so when you look across all the sectors, there does seem to be very good levels of activity continuing. They thought the office sector would die at the end of 2017. I don't know whether Brexit has driven that on, probably to a certain extent. And are, are you are you experiencing firsthand the, are you experiencing, I, I suppose, the changes there in terms of fit out? Fit out. Uh, office fit out. Yes. Not yet. No, we're bidding for a lot of office fit out at the moment. But in terms of changing trends, what people are looking for, the spec. Well, I know we work, for example, have taken up a huge amount of office space in Dublin. Their model is quite interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you, you just come in, you take a small area, mm-hmm. and you can take whatever you want from mm-hmm. one office up to maybe uh, a whole floor. So I think that flexibility is good for, yeah. for business. And I know again that that whole concept of space as a service is something that we've explored 
in depth and it's certainly I, I think what's interesting about it is that um we actually looked at a at a UK study that was showing that long term leases are getting shorter, but the short term leases are getting longer. So what started as three and six months are turning into eighteen months. But what also started at twenty five and thirty five years are coming down to you know, twelve and fourteen and down perhaps as low as seven. So I'm just wondering where that's going to land in terms of, you know, we know that that consumer expectations have changed, but our financiers our financiers are they on board with this? You know, people still need to obtain credit to acquire these. There's been a massive shift yeah. on that front. I mean the number of funds that are required to be involved in mm. any development that you do now. It's hugely challenging, but what I suppose has surprised me and given me a bit of confidence that there is still a relatively high level of speculative development on the office sector, mm-hmm. which in many ways blows me away because it must be high risk. Um, but these are people who know what they're doing. And where would they be located now, that speculative location? Well, some of them are in uh, Sandyford. Oh, okay. But that surely would be a fairly safe bet going. Yeah, but it's a huge investment mm-hmm. and you don't have a tenant. So, mm-hmm. you know, you cannot say that you're not going to put 20, 30 million at risk oh. and with no certainty at the other end that somebody's going to sign a lease. Yeah. And the leases have changed. So you, you used to be 21-year lease, 10-year break clauses the, with upward rents only reviews and after every five years. They're long gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to be lean. You have to be flexible. And just on the, on the uh, we were, is there, do you see any strong trends either way in relation to remote working? Yeah, I think people want more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You go into a lot of the modern offices now, you don't have your own desk. You go in and yeah. you pick a desk, a hot desk. Yeah, you actually, um, some, some people have booked their desk. So, uh, <laughs> so that's different. And, and just, I mean, I find that very interesting, you know, racial perspective. And, and Carl just mentioned it there a moment ago. Any sense of trepidation in relation to Brexit with property development, with property speculation? I think, yeah, a lot of trepidation. The uncertainty that's created in the last three years is staggering. In this um, country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a huge number of Irish businesses who do business in the UK. Yeah. And you, do, you do not know what the implications are. You can second-guess it all you like, but you don't know. We were lucky we pulled back. We had a business in the UK pulled back from the UK five, five years ago. But uh, I wouldn't like to have a large part of my business in the UK at the moment. So, so sorry, just, Scott, just yeah. from the point of view that if you're, you know, Looking, if you want to go abroad, um, would you be accustomed to, say, the, the culture in, in France or Germany? Or would it be in any way similar to how, what you experience in the UK? No, the business culture? Quite different. Yeah. Quite different. And would, would, would that put you off, for instance? Well, you know, we, we, we won our first project in Sweden and uh, yeah. had to mobilise within a week. But was that a data centre for a client? Mm that you had been familiar with in Ireland. Yeah, but we, we then realised that there's a six-week period between the 21st of June and the 15th of August where legally every employee can take three weeks holidays, and most of them do. And we were trying to mobilise two massive projects. So we got over it, we worked our way through it. So that's just a measure of how good the working conditions are in Sweden. But you can take other countries. You mentioned mm-hmm. France. Haven't done any business in France. It's supposed to be challenging, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's just a different way of doing business in France. Sure. And I'm not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I would have lived and worked in Spain, so I'd be more comfortable looking at Spain. And I think there's going to be a lot of activity there coming forward. Uh, Holland is really good, but they're running out of power in the greater Amsterdam area. So that's a huge challenge for the data center industry. They're running out of power. Yeah. 
and they have a kind of a, a they have sufficient energy and sufficient yeah. uh, okay supply. Is that something, and this might be an unfair question to put to you, but um, is that something that could happen in Ireland? I think um, there was a risk, maybe, but uh, I think there's a maturity there at the moment when the government has seen the level of investment that uh, is coming down the tracks in terms of investment in land. Uh, I think there's a bigger appetite now, from what I've been told, to invest in Mm -hmm. the generation of power. And, you know, different ways of generating power, gas, combined gas, power plants. Uh, and that's widely accepted now. So, no, I think uh, after the Apple tobacco, I, mm-hmm. I can see a, a shift in, in how it's been approached yeah. in Ireland. Well, which obviously is a positive thing. And it brings us nicely on to the issue of sustainability um, across the construction <coughs> sector. Uh, obviously, that's such a huge conversation that's going on at the moment. You know, where is Colin Construction in that? Yeah, it's... Um, you're constantly analysing, I suppose, your carbon footprint and, you know, how can you change simple things like light switches, how you're policing people turning off power devices and trying to get smarter around the use of energy. Uh, we've, we've done a major upgrade to our own offices to try and you know, get more solar power. But is this something, are you, are, is this something that's client-led or is, no. are you driving it? No, we're driving it ourselves. What I find, people are more interested now, especially younger people. Oh, yeah. you know, they, my daughter would stress about yeah. the world in 40, 50 years' time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They want to see the shift. You've seen some great leadership around the world from very young people now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's what's going to change. It's going, you know, it's going to take that sort of um, leadership, right, to make politicians, I suppose, sit up and mm-hmm. realise that they've got to have their agendas right. And, uh, you know, the one thing, go back to the first thing I said here, you know, Ireland made a shift on safety along 20 years ago and that was a brilliant decision so you need to change through strong leadership around regu- how you regulate things and how we're behind the curve I think here in Ireland from, mm-hmm. from what I can see in terms of our commitments to as a government to try to get our carbon footprint to an, oh yeah yeah yeah, and, I, yeah no and, and this is a sector that's criticised but I think it's also one that hasn't seen strong leadership in this and you know certainly it's something that that I think everybody needs to take seriously. It's something, but the guy, we need to get a firmer handle on the guidelines that are here. And I know that um, there are plans afoot to assess all proposed developments as part of the planning process, what the carbon footprint would be. And in fact, we reached out to the to the agency that's going to be administering that and there are no guidelines in place as yet. So we don't even know what that's going to look like or what shape it's going to take. But um, Tommy, before we finish up today, you know, very briefly, you know, what's what's in the future? You know, thank you so much for, for bringing this book, You're actually, welcome. so we can look at 200 years of building and civil engineering in Ireland. But what's ahead for Colin? Yeah, I think in a year's time, our, our European business will be larger than our Irish business. So that's a quite a deliberate decision, you know, to have a footprint in another economy, maybe two other economies, just to protect ourselves in, in, in terms of maybe something that might happen at home. And uh, I've seen that happen too many times. So I think for us, we want to become a European business and we're well on the road. And uh, so that's our Tommy, vision. it was just great. And I could, Perfect. Uh, we could do another hour with you. That was Tommy Drum, uh, Managing Director of Colin Construction. As I say, thank you for joining us today. You can get in touch with the programme by emailing hello at ipropertyradio.com or on Twitter at ipropertyradio. OK, that's it from us in studio today. Thank you, Tommy, for being with us. And also thanks to producer Katie Tallon and Adam Duke on sound. We're back at the same time next week from Brian Fox and myself, Carl Tallon. Have a great week.